Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Truth About Real Estate podcast. And today on this episode, we're talking real estate syndication, asset management, and data-driven investing with founder and general partner uh, at Smart Asset Capital, Brock Magnuson. How's it going, Brock? Thanks for being on the show today. Doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Matthew. Cool. So yeah, right, right before this, we're just getting started. You're from you're in Milwaukee right now, uh, Wisconsin, and you know you've been doing real estate for a couple of years now. And we wanted to find out more about you, how you got started. Um, you mentioned you know getting started in multifamilies, getting to a um, real estate syndication, and we want to learn more about the process and how how do you do that. Yeah, so it's it's been uh, it's it's been awesome. I mean, I, I've been been in this it's kind of switched over. Started with a duplex, and after that, the next deal was a syndicated eighty nine unit deal, uh, apartment building, and that space just kind of caught my eye, and I could see the kind of the opportunities to, to build a business around it more so, and really that's what kind of brought me into it. The idea of going after bigger deals and um, leveraging partnerships to get there. So that was the the route I took with it. You know, most people, when they start in real estate, they usually start like, hey, I'm going to start buying myself single family homes, maybe some multi-units, some condos, maybe some fix and flips. How do you go into real estate? You know, you mentioned a couple years ago now, about three. How do you go in, buy a multifamily, and then suddenly jump into syndication? Like, how do you bypass these steps? And like, what got you to do that? Really, for me, it was just the right partnership. Um I, uh, after I bought the duplex, I spent some time, you know, there's a million different ways you can go on real estate, right? I mean, you can go wholesale, flip, you know, single families. There's a lot of different ways to go. And I spent some time exploring each avenue and really was just seeing, you know, there's benefits to all of them. But for me, it was, I landed on this idea of going after bigger deals and syndication was the way to do it for me, right? I didn't have all the money to go buy them myself. Um, so that was kind of the way I did it. And I said, well, let me figure out a way. Obviously, I'm not gonna. I don't have any of the qualifications to go syndicate a deal on my own. I need partners, so I figured let me hone in on a skill specific. There's a lot that goes into syndicating a deal. For me, it was let me figure out you know one piece of the puzzle that goes into syndication. Spend a lot of time and learn about it and become you know somewhat of a you know an expert in, in that specific niche of it, and then go out and find partners that maybe lack that piece or are looking for someone to partner with in that in that arena. And for me, it was. The analysis of deals, you know, the more the analytical side of um, stuff that goes into it. So that's where I spent six months or so just doing everything I can, just learning, learning, learning. Went out networking, found the right person that was, you know, had some experience looking to kind of get into more syndication stuff. And we created our partnership, which turned into Smart Asset Capital. And now we've gone on to do, you know, six or seven of uh, syndicated deals. Nice. Let's talk about that because, you know, there's a lot to unpack right there. So, like, how, first step. Yeah, like what made you decide to get in real estate and what made you decide to buy a multi-unit and where did you end up buying that multi-unit? Yeah, so the first deal, so really it goes goes back to I grew up my my dad owned two duplexes. Okay. And I, I came from a very blue-collar job. Um, and I just saw like what that could do to you know enhance your life, right? The cash flow of, of just owning simply four units, what it could do, what that could do. So it was kind of my first three out of college. I was like, well, you know, let me just start. I'm just going to buy a duplex, you know, save up some money, buy a duplex. And that was the first step. I never really thought much of it. Never thought it'd be what I, you know, my my career path I would take. It was more so it just it seems like the right thing to do. And then as soon as I bought it, you know, in the first month or two, I did the house hack model and I'm living in it, you know, and living for free and I'm cash flowing. So I make a couple hundred bucks a month and living for free. I'm just like, okay, this is, this is crazy. Now let me, how can I, you know, 10x this and make it you know much bigger than than just a duplex and that was kind of the path i you know that ended up leading to where to where i am today nice that's a smart move you buy a multifamily, you know you figure out how to house hack it you know and you get partial rented and it's covering like you said it's covering your mortgage and you're getting some profit from that. especially in the beginning too that's a good thing to do and like who taught you how to you know buy a, and did you partner with someone and then how, who taught you how to buy the multi-unit how to figure out the numbers house hack it and start profiting yeah really what well, the first one i did uh, to be honest i really didn't have much much knowledge at all i mean i listened to maybe you know some you know handful of podcasts read a book or two and that was kind of just kicking it off i mean but it's real I always tell people too, like house hacking a duplex, it's you still have to kind of you have to you have to cover the bases and understand, you know, how much money is coming in, what's going out, what's your mortgage, you know, the simple things like that, location. But it's fairly easy to do. I mean, you get an FHA loan, three and a half percent down, 
as long as you know you, have, you leave a little buffer there for you know furnace breaking or something it's it, it's pretty simple to do i always tell people if they're looking to get into it and start smaller i mean that's the best way to do it because you can get into these deals that are relatively simple um and kind of protect protect a lot of the downside through you know and putting three and a half percent down so it's uh yeah if you go into that first one my, my knowledge is pretty basic you know i started with listen bigger pockets podcasts and had a general idea of what you know how to analyze a deal but nowhere near you know the sophistication it would take to have gone after a larger deal at that point Nice. Yeah, that's a smart move. I think a lot of people, you know, definitely start out with uh, one property first. And before they start jumping this indication, they start they're figuring things out in real estate, like trying to learn um, and have boots on the ground locally and doing a house hack is a good, ex good example, because you're learning about, you know, buying, doing dealing with mortgage, dealing with insurance, dealing with tenants, dealing with management, trying to make cash flow on the property and build up equity at the same time. Were you adding value to the property as well? Like doing remodeling anything while you're living there or you just bought and lived? Yeah, yeah, I, I rehabbed and rehabbed the whole thing pretty much, um, which was great. Being involved with, you know, be, being pretty involved with that first one, doing a lot of the work on my own, and kind of getting an idea of what goes into rehab and how almost always it's going to come up higher, higher than the original project and, and price. Um, just a lot of learning lessons there. I mean, learned a ton for sure there, and that's what allowed me to to kind of have a base of knowledge to to, to, to go from there. But yeah, the, the rehab in that one was was a lot of work, and I ended up being a great deal. What'd you do? And like, what did you learn from it? It was uh, pretty much got the whole thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, like pretty much flooring, you know, the whole nine yards, essentially. Um, and yeah, did, did the lower unit while I was living in it and then moved up to the upper unit, did that one. Um, so ended up being ended up being quite a bit, but it was it was a good learning lesson and kind of did it did it over a period of time where I was able to spread out the costs a little bit. And um, overall, just great, great experience and great, uh, great profit. <laughs> What, uh, what was the experience you learned from like any mistakes you learned from it, any, um, problems you run into? Um, trying to think back if there was any, uh, maybe, maybe just like some of the stuff dealing with contractors and all that, just longer timelines than they originally are going to, especially now. So, I mean, that's even crazier now, but always putting a buffer in there. If they think if they say it's gonna be done next week, maybe, at, you know, you plan the next person to come into the next step maybe leave, you know, a, a buffer in between there because stuff always goes wrong with contractors and delays happen or materials don't come in on time. So leaving a little bit more of a buffer, like stuff like that, some of, some of those lessons there were, were pretty big. Yeah, I think that still applies even today, even 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 more so. And I, I feel like, you know, contractors, they do a lot and it's great. But at the same time, you know, I don't see it directly as, you know, like kind of like corporate America, like your fully structured project management deadlines and everything. It's just kind of like, we're here, we'll get it done. We think it'll take this long, but it might take a lot longer. We don't know for certain. And there's always delays by multiple parties and it's hard to predict. But as an owner and investor, you're like, this sucks because you know there's no control, right? You don't know the exact timeline. You think it, we know how estimates, some people, investors might know exactly how long it takes, but everyone has multiple jobs going on at the same time. There's material supply issues, supply chain issues, there's costs, right? And workers that are um, hard to get a hold of and make the project run on time. And are they running a full crew at your house or are they spreading the full crew across multiple properties? Then it gets harder yeah. right, to deal with. And, yep. but the good thing about it is like, as an investor, you're learning a lot from it. You're seeing timelines, you're understanding cost materials, um, what goes into it and kind of expectations. And you're hopefully building a good team at the same time with that. Uh, it's not easy to find a really good team and someone you can trust and know that it's going to be done when they kind of estimate it's going to be done. Right. Yep, absolutely. And then if you do it yourself, even more fun and hard too, because it is hard labor. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. you do. Okay. So you learn, got down yeah, and knocking out walls and demolition. I mean, yeah, it's good to learn all this stuff, but it makes you appreciate the uh, being able to hire a lot of that stuff out. <laughs> it, it does. And I actually done a lot of remodeling myself too, like remodeling bathroom, kitchens, electrical. Um, cat six lines throughout the whole house and once you start doing all that work yourself you're like wow this is hard labor and this yep. is, this is you, you you know exactly what goes in you know how much time it takes you know the kind of cost you're like damn i don't want to do this every day it's not yep. fun. it's not oh, the yeah. thing i want to do it looks pretty on looks great on tv but in person <laughs> you're like covered in you know drywall and dust and yep. cement right they just show the fun parts on tv <laughs> yeah exactly they don't show you the intensive hours it goes through that yep <laughs> exactly. I'm just <laughs> laughing about it because we've we've done that a lot. Um, so next thing is too, after buying a multifamily, how do you get your mindset 
and just jump into syndication, like how did you just start really pouring into it, start learning about it? You said you, you know, you started focusing on like learning the, exactly what you needed and then partnered up with people. How did you do that? Yeah, it was just a lot of, a lot, a lot of, a lot of the education process. I mean, it was, you just really have to figure out, I think people, especially if they're looking to get into, you know, some of these, some of these like larger deals or syndication specifically where there's more that goes into it. Um, trying to learn it all at once really isn't the best way to do it in my experience. Um, you know, there's just so many pieces of capital raising. There's and then analyzing deals, underwriting, there's asset management, there's, you know, broker relations. There's a whole bunch of other things that go into it instead of trying to, and eventually, uh, you know, further I'm getting into this, you know, I'm now I'm involved in the, the whole, the whole puzzle, but in the beginning, just really everyone, you know, everyone has a superpower or really good at one specific thing. And most likely it applies to a piece in the puzzle. So it's really just figure out what it is and just double down on it and become very good at it and attractive at it. And then network and find, find the right partners. Cause you're, there is, if you go to enough networking events, you're going to find someone else that has the opposite skill set of you and has the same, same vision as you and you get along. Well, I mean, partnerships aren't easy to come by, but you know, you, you get out there enough, you're going to meet the right person and that can, you know, catapult your business pretty quickly. Nice. And did you partner with a, like a senior um, investor or senior syndicator? Yeah, I ended up partnering with two people. One of them, um, neither of them had done, had done any syndications, but um, he has, you know, his own property management company and had a couple hundred units already on his own. So it was um, very good being able to partner with someone like that, that especially when it comes time to get the loan on a property. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm walking into the bank with a duplex and, you know, maybe $50,000 net worth. Um, that's not, that's not going to do much on a multi-million dollar apartment building. You need someone <laughs> with a strong, you know, strong network, strong, strong liquidity, all, all those, all those boxes. So partnering with someone like that too. I mean, a lot of times you, you partner with someone just like that and they don't even do anything and they're just, you know, put their name on the loan. Um, so th- there's a lot, a lot of things that go into it. That's why it's really tough to do without partnerships. It's possible. You see people that do it, but for me, it's just, it was just a quicker way to get there by, by partnering with others and it's worked well. Nice. That really makes sense. And it takes a lot of work and, you know, encouragement and a little fear too, because you're, for example, to go from being an individual investor to being a team on a team with all right partners together, it takes a lot of work and a lot of trust. And with that in mind too, like finding the right partners is like, it's kind of like marriage. It's not easy. It's all, you know, a lot of compromise, a lot of compassion, yeah. a lot of um, constant communication, clear communication too, because this is regarding investments, people's money. So you really need to be clear with your partners on understanding each other and what your goals are together and that we're aligned together to make sure we're helping our investors do the best they can, right? Yep. That's not easy to find good partners. How did you find good partners? Like, how do you vet them and how do you know they're good partners? What made it, made it click for you? Yeah. Um, first off, it was just, um, well, I, I met them through networking and bigger pockets specifically, actually, that was kind of a chain of events through that. But, um, and then it was really just first off having the same vision. Uh, we had the same idea of, we, you know, we'd, we'd meet multiple times and, and talk about what, what our idea was for where we wanted to get our portfolios to. And that's the first piece. You can't, you can't partner with someone if they're thinking, well, you know, I want to go this route in multifamily or, you know, I want, I'd rather do, you know, commercial this way. You just really just have first have to have the vision so you can connect on that. Otherwise it's just going to be doomed from the beginning. Um, and then as well, just make sure your values align and, and stuff like that. I mean, you can't, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to check all the boxes in the beginning in a partnership because you're going to learn more about it as, as you start working together. Um, and you don't want to sit there for a year trying to vet someone before you partner. It's kind of, you got to use a lot of your own intuition, but I think the biggest thing is just making sure your visions align. And then, you know, you have the same sort of um, work ethics. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's really hard to find. And once you find someone really good that you can trust, then you guys can just keep building uh, like crazy because if you have the same vision, the same kind of mindset, then you will, you'll get to where you want to be because you guys are going to push each other to be there. Right. Yep. But yeah, if one person's off and says, Hey, I want, I want to go a totally different route and it doesn't even make sense to you because that's not your vision. That's their vision. Then it won't, it'll be really hard because you can't compromise in between the lines. Right. It gets tough. Yep. 
Absolutely. So then you have to understand, hey, I need to find the, the right partner. There's so many people out there. There's great people out there and there's some bad people out there, but really finding the key person that you can build a team with. That's why they call it like, a, for example, they call it like a core forward as, as one way for just investing. But when you get into syndication now, you're adding more people to that core four on top of it, GPs, right? General partners. And to find really good key partners and key people too, um, especially funding and you know qualifying, then it gets even tougher too because you need, they have to have the, your vision as well. Yep, absolutely. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you found that because it, it takes time. And once you find the right people, then you can start moving, right? So now you found the right people. What's the next step? You guys have the vision. You guys found the people. How did you start building this indication? Yeah, it was really just a chain of events of us finding this deal that made sense. And we were like, oh, we all, we all kind of, we could partner up on this deal together. You know, this person brings this, this person brings that. And it was more so just kind of, we, we did, we got this deal under contract, started working together. Like, yeah, it's kind of working well. Let's just, what about how we just kind of start, start a company together. And that was kind of how, how it was born. And then we did that one. And then a few months later, did another one. And then a few months later, another one. And then it just kind of, we realized over a year or so that we, we work well together and we figured out kind of our niches and it's uh yeah, it's been, it's been a great, great way to, great way to go. Nice. And when you do your first deal, are, did you guys JV the deal or you guys actually say, hey, let's form a syndication really quickly. We're already in contract. We need to put this under the right corporation, you know, the right setup structure, legal structure, and then start raising money on the first deal. Or you guys just did the deal together? That was, was our first deal was syndicated. Okay. Um, and yeah, it was really we, that, that was our idea. I mean, as we put it under a contract, we knew like we were already in communication. Like it was kind of like we're going to syndicate this. We didn't we didn't really want to bring all that equity you know, ourselves or probably couldn't even, you know, Pull that pull that much, to be honest. But um, so yeah, right off the bat, it was it was this is what it's going to be, and this is the process we have to follow. Nice, I'm, that's good. It's not easy to you know first find a deal, put it under contract, and then you know at the same time you're doing that, you're also bu building the legal structure, working with syndication lawyers, setting everything up, and then raising funds at the same time. Right, that's like a multiple jobs in one. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the the. Uh, the whole process. I mean, the, the first time you do it, you can, you can kind of read the books and follow and say, okay, you got to do this, this, but each time you go through, you kind of learn something. Like I learned, you know, small things like the day you get a property under contract, engage the bank, engage, you know, the attorney to get the paperwork started. Don't wait a few weeks and kind of, cause all that stuff takes a long time and there are always delays and this takes an extra day or two. So stuff like that, you wouldn't really know from just reading books and all that stuff. It's more so you just kind of got to do it and learn and, make notes of it and do it different the next time. Yeah. I, I noticed that too. Like they don't, no one tells you, Hey, when you're doing, you're getting your first property, you need to do 10 different jobs at the exact same time. There's no waiting. There's no, like this goes first and this goes first. They all go first. Yeah. That's a problem because like, wait, no one told me that they all go first. And exactly. I, which one yeah. goes first? So first I'm like, well, they all go first. So just do it I don't the first day. Yeah. <laughs> you need, you need like if you're raising money, how are you getting the financing set up? How are you doing due diligence? How are you doing this and that? How are you marketing? Right. But as one person, that's why syndication, you need a team. You have to find the team. You have to learn. You have to have mentors. You have to have ex build up the experience and the right key people to make it work, right? Oh, yeah. It's exactly right. It's it's, it's so hard to do on your own. Um, and, yeah, it's what I've learned is it's really you get a deal under contract, and it's like those first those first couple weeks, you know, like, okay, there's a tsunami of work that's coming. And it's just like, okay, you're, hit, you're hitting the due diligence stuff. You're doing this. And it seems that kind of, you know, you're always raising capital throughout, throughout the, throughout the time. But then it's after, you know, a few weeks or a month slows down a little bit after you start getting investor commitments and then a couple weeks before closing, especially the week of closing, it's just ramped straight back up. So it's kind of a roller coaster as far as how much work goes into these deals. Um, uh, but, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun to, to, to be engaged. I think it's a lot of fun too, because when you have real estate sales, you buy your own property, you flip, you invest is completely different because now you're saying, Hey, I'm actually an asset manager. I'm actually raising capital. I'm actually using that capital to deploy it, to buy assets. And then I'm, you know, making hopefully good investments for people and then returning those investments. So it's completely different than, than I just helped you buy a property and sold it. And then whatever I walk away. Right. It's yeah. so different. Even if I made you money, it's not the same kind of feeling as I am actually, actually your asset manager into building, um, uh, true generational wealth, true tax diversifications, hopefully uh, wealth preservations versus I just bought and sold your property where I bought my own, right? So different feeling. Oh yeah. And that's, I think that that's a lot of, I feel like a lot of the education. So that's how I think, I think a lot of it's getting better now, but 
all of it really talks about is finding the deal, raising the money for the deal, financing the deal. You rarely see content out there that talks about asset management. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people get the misconception, especially you know, in the syndication and these bigger deal spaces. Oh, all I have to do is get across the finish line, buy it, you know, flip it over to the property manager, check in with them maybe once a month. And then, you know, five, six years from now, we'll sell it, double our money to investors. And, you know, this is easy. Yeah. But realistically, asset management is probably, you know, it's double the amount of work and than everything else. I mean, you got to be on top of it daily, weekly, you know, weekly calls with property managers, tracking everything, making sure the business plan is implemented, you know, reporting to investors. There's just so much that that goes into asset management that I think a lot of people don't necessarily know, you know, before they get into their first deal. But it's uh, it's super key. Uh, I agree. I think they people have like, hey, I'm raising money. I'm building a syndication. I'm doing all this stuff. They don't go into the exact details that you just mentioned. Here's all the things you need to do with that. Here's all your responsibilities. And yep compliances, SECs, and all these rules that you need to follow. If not, you can be in trouble for you and your investors. So really, it's a lot more work to it than the glamorous parts of it. You know, I think a lot of yep. people focus on the key glamour, like, hey, we just raised a billion dollars at a fund, whatever it is, right? Sounds great, but it's a lot of work behind it if you're actually doing really well for investor groups. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because without the asset management, I mean, the returns aren't there. You can't just rely on even the best property management company out there. <laughs> isn't going to, you know, get into every single details and they're going to miss stuff. So you have to, I mean, you have to be on top of them and you have to make sure, you know, you're hitting your performa because if you just hand, flip it off to them, 99.99% chance that you're not going to hit your performa. So you're telling me, even though, even though I hand it off to a property manager, they're not going to do the due diligence, make sure everything's perfect and run all the financial auditing, make sure everything's good and make sure they're saving you money. You're telling me yep, that's, that's uh, what happens? That's <laughs> no. They'll make sure the day-to-day stuff gets, they'll collect the rent, you know, they'll fix the stuff, they'll deal with the tenants, which is huge. I mean, that's, that's a lot of work. Um, But beyond that, it's, you know, they're not, they're, they're not, they're not tracking all these specific details that you need to be tracking in order to hit your returns. Exactly. So yeah, as an asset manager, the job for asset manager is really to, you know, help make sure your your core four people are really there taking care of the property also to analyze what's going on to make sure what they're doing is they, they say they're doing and to make sure the numbers look kind of good right and make sure that there's no you know errors emissions or actually even fraud and make sure that you know people are paying on time what's the vacancy what's the remodeling cost the maintenance cost and are they just elevating costs naturally on purpose what are they doing so kind of auditing that too and really keeping a good eye on it whether it's four units or hundreds of units, you got to make sure everything looks pretty solid, right? Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. And I've seen some people too. Sometimes there's good property managers and sometimes there's some not so good ones. For example, some, some, some of them I see that, Hey, we're going to turn the, turn the units as quickly as we can. We get leasing fees on all those units, but it doesn't matter to us because we're just a property manager. Right. But like, they're not keeping retention up. Another ones will start upcharging you on all these things. I need to maintain this, come back 10 different times and charge you a lot of money every single time I come back. Mm-hmm. So those can add up, right? Oh yeah. It's uh yeah. Pro- it's, it's, it's tough to find a good property management. Um, and when you do, it's, you just got to, you know, treat them well and, and make sure to hang on to them. Exactly. Good property managers, good contractors, good handyman workers. Uh, and then people who kind of watch how they go, they understand the one, the really good property managers are the one who understands that, Hey, we're building something together. We're going to keep building up, up the assets. Right. And then the more you can maintain it, think of it as not just property management, think of it as a way to build capital, build wealth for everyone and everyone wins together. Then it becomes a lot better. Right. Absolutely. So now you guys got your first syndication, you started going, you get everything up and running. Is there any, like, what's the biggest, the hurdles that you guys had had to go through to get that, to make that happen? Um, it was, I'd say just like learn, you know, a lot of the processes, learning, learning the processes, definitely some learning lessons on the first deal. Um, and, you know, just, just taking those lessons and, you know, applying them to, to changes and what we should do different on the next one. I mean, I think in this business, you're always going to be learning no matter how long you're doing it. There's always going to be something that changes and figuring and pivoting and learning how to do it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it was a lot, a lot of the stuff we just kind of, you know, we, we had, we had a solid education going into it, but it was, you know, kind of learning and applying, applying our changes and being able to pivot quickly um, has, has been, has been the key for sure. I think one of the challenges I, I see too, is that 
even though you're learning, you're doing all these things, you get a property under contract. One of the hard parts I see is the um, raising money. Raising money is can be, especially your first one, is the most toughest. Yep. Now you're really utilizing relationships, you're utilizing trust, you're showing your experience, you're discussing this, what's what your vision is, and hopefully people adopt that. The second part I see that challenges after you do that really having them sign the subscription agreement and really funding it because people say they want to do it. And then when it comes to the deadline, they're like, eh, I'm not so sure yet. Right. So there's a, there's a percentage that will not go through. I'd say, I'd say it's about 50%. Okay. Um, and that definitely, that was one of the learning lessons is, you know, before we did the first one, I was, I was talking to people and you get on calls with people or reach out to your network. And it's really easy when you're having coffee with someone and you, you, you give the whole pitch. This is what I'm trying to do. At least be our target returns. It's really easy for someone to, to say, yeah, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be under 50 grand if you could find a deal like that. Mm-hmm. And then four or five months later, you hit them up and, hey, you know, I, f- I found that deal. Here it is. Exactly what I was going to say it is, you know, and all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, let me let me think about it. You know, you follow up. And, yeah, a lot of times they'll say they're in. And then it comes time to wire. Oh, no, you know, this you, you'd be amazed by the excuses you hear mm-hmm. of why they can't wire the money. And it's, yeah. I mean, that's, you, you just got, so you got to account for that. I mean, if you think, if you think you have a million dollars committed, expect to actually bring in 500 grand. That's, that's kind of my rule of thumb now is, you know, you got, you got to account for overage there. Cause a lot of times people say they're in and, and stuff comes up realistically, or they just kind of get cold feet back out. Yeah, I completely agree. I think 50% is a really good uh, number. And I, the reason I see too is that, yeah, you know, people have things going on. We don't know what their life is, what's going on, what their money, financial situations are. But I think the way we can see it is that, hey, we're here providing a lot of value, a lot of education. And then when the people are ready, they'll come and join in. And until that time they're ready, you just keep, you know, loving on them, providing them value, showing what's going on, trying to say, hey, our vision is really to help you invest, really to diversify your portfolio, really to find ways to preserve your wealth and build generational wealth. And within that, when you're ready, come on board and join us. But in the meantime, we're just going to keep growing, keep sharing our knowledge to everyone out there. And hopefully the more people hear it, one is building an audience to hear it, like, you know, podcasting, like joining our podcast, joining other people's podcasts and talking about what's going on. I think the more people hear it in life, the better it becomes because you know remember like high school college it's not really about financial literacy right it's not it's, not. it's education in general but really yeah. I wish they talked about real estate investing assets financials building that model up but now people like you and us are doing that we're, t- we're educating and some people have different you know fear conservative levels and we understand that but the more you just keep sharing with them the more people re- come, become receptive okay actually this makes sense i'm tired of working the nine to five i'm tired of just sitting here i'm not not, not building right Yep. You can go actively invest yourself. Great. It makes money. It's a lot of work. You can do it. Passively also makes a lot of money. You can do it and it, it can become easier, but the either way you have to learn either way. No, yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right. And go, so go, going back to, you brought up a good point with the, with raising money. I mean, that was definitely the, the first deal, you know, luckily I had the partnership that I was explaining, but the first deal my, myself trying to raise money, it was, you know, I had a duplex and I had, you know, a year's worth of education in real estate, trying to raise money from people to give, to give over their hard earned money. I mean, it was tough. I was able to help a little bit with the raise, but the more, and I know you hear, there's a lot like the, the what they call it, like the law of the first deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's so true. I mean, I remember just, you know, you hear it back, you hear it on podcasts, like, oh, it just kind of sounds like bullshit, but you, then you actually happens and it's like, okay, you do your first one. And now all of a sudden you have a track record to say, hey, you know, we bought this deal, you know, we're three months in, we, we've achieved this, this, and this. You're able to kind of leverage that and you need the second one. And it just, it builds from there. I mean, those first couple of deals raising capital and yeah, it was tough because we didn't really, as a team, we didn't really have a track record. You know, obviously the partnership helps to be able to leverage, you can kind of leverage your partner's experience quite a bit. But now we raise capital. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's easy to do because I don't think it, you know, if anyone tells you it's easy, it's not, I mean, maybe for the top, top elite, but it's, uh, now it's you know we we oversubscribe pretty quickly and there's no better words to tell you know someone that was being slow on wiring money hey well too late you know into the next one because then that just creates even more demand but it's um yeah definitely it's definitely tough i mean if you're lucky enough to come in with a with a really strong network it might be easier but for me it was kind of starting with not much of a network and just having to kind of build build it up how did you build up the network i would say you know just a lot of networking. The biggest thing for me was starting a meetup. Um, we we started a, a meetup that focused specifically on multifamily here in Wisconsin, have grown it to, and I say, say this specifically because 
the largest multifamily um, meetup in Wisconsin. Nice. Um, specifically multifamily, not not the largest, you know, real estate meetup. Because um, a lot of the other, and what, kind of take, take that step back, I was going to all these meetups. Um, and I bet a lot of people in other markets can relate. Bigger markets, you know, probably have more options to choose from. But for me, I was going, when I was first starting, I mean, I was hitting three days a week, finding every meetup I could within an hour and just going to them. Wow. And it was every single, I'm not even excited, every single one I'd go to, I probably went to, there was like five or six within an hour of me. And all six of them were about flipping houses or wholesaling. Yeah, I never found one. I'd go to these and say, "Hey, you know, I'm, my goal is at that point." I was like, "Okay, I want to try to buy a 16 unit or whatever." Um, and people were just like, "Okay, well, you know, that's cool. I'm I'm working on flipping this house." And it was all, which is good knowledge, Jimmy, because it all it all helps. But we're like, uh, and finally, when I got when I met my first partner, we're like, "Well, let's just like start our own, and we'll specifically, you know, talk about multifamily apartments." And we started it kind of with no plan, just create a Facebook page and, you know, found a space to do it and then kept on doing it. I mean, we've been doing it for, I think, about two years now. And it's been awesome. I mean, we've met so many connections, deals, investors. Um, it's It's been huge. You see the power of networking and events. Like, for example, I think of myself and my, my team as more of like a marketing agency, right? If you start thinking about marketing and events coordination and put those two together and you're a marketing firm, you can actually build really quickly, easier because cold calling is hard. Calling people asking for the money without even seeing them and say, yeah, give me 100K or whatever, that's not easy to do. You really have to have trust and relationship. But if I meet you and I hear what you're saying and how your vision is and I believe in it and I like it and I'm actually actively looking for multifamily deals anyways and your numbers make more sense than mine, for example, if I'm doing local small versus a local big one, then I might more be inclined to say, hey, actually, I want to learn more about that, right? Because now I know you, I've seen you, I hear you, I see people talking to you, and they're wanting to be in there. I want to be a part of that too, right? No, I, I love that approach of taking it from, you know, not even, like I said, I'm building a marketing company, even though it's, it's all real estate. Because that's, mm -hmm. nowadays, I mean, if you have, if you have good marketing, on top, with, with sales on top of that, I mean, you're just going to kill it in pretty much any business. So I, I love that approach. Right? I said, I'm building, you know, a marketing company. And then, you know, we, we, we take, we take that and we turn into real estate. Cause that's, that's something I'm definitely trying to do more of. It's tough, right? I mean, you know, getting, staying committed to putting out content and putting, you know, making the content look nice. And it's, it's, it's a lot that goes into it, but I think, you know, especially in, in today's day and age where you're, you're fighting for people's attention, you have 10 seconds to capture their attention. It's, um, but it's it's just super key, so I, I definitely like that. Good, I, I learned a lot of that from like you know Gary Vaynerchuk, how he talks mm -hmm. about hey, for example, everyone's everyone, even individual people are marketing their brand, and they really need to think about it as a brand. Create your audience, create your influence, create value, and share with everyone you can. Because if you share with ten people, that's your audience. That's not going to help you really much. But if you can create that audience to you know hundreds of thousands of people, you have a percentage that will actually like you, want to work with you, and do deals with you. And especially when you start showing the content, the value, the sales history, more and more people will say, yes, I'm into that. But versus if you just, you know, secret agent or secret investor and no one knows, then it's really hard to say, hey, I want to invest with you. No one, I can't even find you on Facebook, for example. Then, you know, why would I trust you to give you my money, right? Exactly. It's a great, uh, I'm sure a lot, a lot of listeners listen to Grant Cardone, but his, his big thing is money follows attention. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's the three simplest words, but it's so true. The more attention you can create, I mean, the more money is going to follow. That's very true. And yet not all agents, not all investors actually do that though. They're like, well, they don't, cause they're not marketing experts, for example, but anyone can learn to do it, right? They can learn to make videos. They can learn to write content. They can learn to tell the story, but it's hard. It's not the same because yeah, pick up the phone, calling someone might be easier, but telling the story of why and how and when is totally different. It's definitely a, a huge shift. I've, I've been trying to do it for the past you know, handful of months. I've been doing more on Instagram, like social media, trying to, you know, build up a network and it's tough. I mean, I consider myself a pretty introverted person and to grab, you know, grab your phone and take a selfie video and, you know, <laughs> post it or, you know, caption, you know, just stuff like that where it's, you, you have to get out of your shell. I mean, you can do it without it. I mean, it's definitely, you know, you see, see people all the time that are huge that don't have any social media or stuff like that, but it's just, and, you know, today, I mean, if you can, if you can create a network, that's just, it's just so valuable and you, you, you have to be willing to put yourself out there to do that. Exactly. And I tell a lot of uh, our people about that all the time. Like you really need to put yourself out there, get rid of the fear, get rid of the judgment, negativity. Don't bother. Just post, keep posting. It's all yep. for yourself. No one watches. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter. Just keep posting. Right. Yep. 
the time will come when it's ready. And I really see value in that. And the reason I talk about that even is following data. The data is this. You built the platform. You built the audience. You built content. You create value. If you get one like, one thing is, for example, who cares about likes, right? But the point of it is this. Did anyone see your content? Is it valuable? Did a person even make a comment? If one person makes a comment back, that's valuable. To one person, yeah. to 100 people, it's valuable. You really got to get the audience to get a bigger audience and keep providing the value. If people keep coming back, that means you really have something good to talk about and people want to hear you. And when you start building the audience, you start building the capital with it, right? In mind, people will come work with you. That's a challenge. 100% agree. Yeah, it's, it's easier said than done for sure, <laughs> but it's you're exactly right. I mean, you can't just can't just expect to post, you know, one photo and be like, okay, well, there we go. I, you know, I did my job. Let's see the investors come in. It's yeah. Day to day, staying on top of it, whatever platform you're using. It's just, and by no means am I any expert in any of this, but it's just watching others do it and, and learning and, and experiencing trying to, trying to get it, get after it. It's just, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. It is. And I, I talk about this too. Like, Hey, for example, fashion girls, guys, like when they have a huge following, they worked their butt off to get there. They don't, yep. even if they look good or not, they worked really hard to get there. They had to provide a lot of content to make that happen. You know, one yep. photo doesn't, and wearing whatever you wear, it doesn't matter when you start can get a fallen consistently. They worked our butt off to get there, right? Oh, yeah. And that provides a lot of value. They talk about even how much they residuals they get, passive incomes from those social media channels on top of what they're doing for sponsorships, on top of what they're doing for courses, education. And they're really working hard. So you can't say, hey, they look good, they got it. Nope, they worked their butt to get it. All right. And we need it's, to learn that yeah. too, to do that. Oh yeah. It, it's, it's crazy. The value that's in, you know, social media or whatever communities and any sort of, you know, network you build. I mean, companies are literally, you look at like private equity companies right now that are selling, I mean, literally um, in their value, in their valuation, you know, how many, how many Instagram followers do you have? You know, you have a million <laughs> Instagram followers. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how, what, what a valuation increase is going to get your equity multiple, but it's, it's on there. I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah, because basically it's based on influence and data now because yep. it's re really analytically driven. So talking about data, how does that work with real estate syndication? A lot of, most, mostly in the asset management. So, I mean, I think obviously there's a lot of the data stuff that goes into tracking trends, you know, population, job growth, all that stuff on the analysis side. Mm -hmm. But I think um, within the asset, that's kind of where on the asset management side, tracking data, um, I think is is something a lot of people don't do. They just might look at their basic income report and rent roll and kind of just, you know, judge, judge performance off that. Um, but diving into the details with asset management has been huge and allows you to, to pivot into certain things, just, you know, tracking, you know, over the past few years, I've built different, you know, I'm always deciding, okay, let me start tracking this. Now start tracking this. Uh, or I might hear someone else talk about it and I might add that into my, you know, weekly tracker and, so just you know a whole bunch of different things stuff like tracking how much how much leads are coming in by source uh we learned that facebook marketplace is our our biggest lead generator so we doubled down on facebook marketplace spent more time hired a virtual assistant that feels messages within 10 minutes um so we can you know capture all these leads and develop a system for those leads to get um shot over to our on-site you know lease manager um leasing agent that's gonna you know set up a schedule appointment with them just stuff like that where the data allows you to build systems around it. That's what a big thing apart about it is you don't want to just start building systems aimlessly, aimlessly if they're not worth it because it takes time and, and money to set up systems. So track the data first, decide you know what trends validate me creating a systems around this trend, and then go from there, build that system. Now, you know, it, it can be off your plate completely, or maybe you know, take it take a lot less of your time and operate more efficiently. Nice. So let's talk about data. What kind of data do you guys track for the uh, properties? Yeah. So I've, I've, uh, there's, there's quite a bit. I've built, built a spreadsheet that I kind of teed it up on my website, but I, I really just am always adding stuff to that. I mean, there's basic stuff like, you know, obviously you got vacancy and income expenses, you know, expense ratio, stuff like that. Um, or tracking how much money is it costing to flip a unit? Um, so that way I can compare it year over year. You know, are we, are we getting, are we trending downwards and our cost to flip units? Um, how many days is it taking to flip units? How many days after it gets, you know, after we, after we, um, flip the unit or after we rehab the unit, is it getting leased? You know, what's, what's the conversion timeline there? And, you know, over time you take, you take all this data and then, and then analyze it. You're not just going to have the data on day one. Um, but you have to track it. You know, sometimes you can go back in systems and be able to pull it, but a lot of times you have to track it on a weekly, daily basis. Um, so, so stuff like that, I talked about like the leads, you know, um, delinquency trends, 
around properties, just lots of different things like that. I'm always kind of adding and, and tweaking what I'm tracking on a weekly basis. Um, and it's, 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 it's super, super simple to do. Um, you know, if any, any good property manager is going to have a good property management software, you know, like Appfolio is one we use and all that data is within there. It's just the way it is, you know, tracked and trend within that system might not be how you want to look at it. So you might have to cobble the other data within there, or maybe you have to pull things off of other websites um, and put it into a centralized dashboard view, whether that just be a simple spreadsheet or actually creating your own, you know, dashboard through Power BI or something, you know, a good look at it. So you can look at that on a, you know, you know, weekly basis. We, we have several reports that go out each week. So we're always looking at it every, every day. I'm, I'm looking at the data. I'm not, you know, there's rarely a day or two that goes by that I'm not um, looking at the data to make decisions on. So that way, when you get a call from your property manager, say, hey, you know, this came up, what should we do? I already have that data in my mind where I can say, okay, I know, you know, collections are at X and, you know, so far this month our expenses are here. Um, so no, you know, let, let's hold off on that, wait till next month. So, something like, you know, just that real rough example, but instead of having to kind of just make a, a guess, you're making an educated decision on data-based, um, you know, facts. Okay. How much does, how much does a flipping a unit cost in general for your areas that you're investing in? Yeah, it, it really depends on the the property and what we're doing with them. Uh, like, so, like one of our properties were just real basic, you know, paint, new flooring, um, some new fixtures that, you know, th those are going maybe for 2,800 um, for a flip. We have, we have another project we're working on where we're not fully gutting the property. We're not really, we're kind of not doing much of the kitchens and all that, but um you know, that, that, that ran about, this is going about six grand, about six grand to flip. So it really just depends. Um, we haven't really done, I mean, we own, we own some retail that we've, we've done in office. We've done some heavier, heavier flips on that. We've, you know, sunk 20 grand into a flip, but if you have to buy a project where you hear some people that are, you know, buying big apartment complexes and putting 20 grand in per door. Um, I haven't gone through like a heavy lift like that yet. Not to say I won't one day, but yeah. um, don't have the like experience to, to talk through anything like that. Okay. Yeah, it'll be a it'll be a lot of fun when you're doing a lot of flips and a lot of work, mm -hmm. and then timing wise, figuring it all out, scheduling it with everyone, having a yep. crew to do that. It gets fun because you're changing a unit so quickly, and hopefully keeping retention up at the same time and moving people to better units. I see it as a way to improve the community. Like you're improving the building, you're improving the community, you're improving the landscape of things, and hopefully at the same time you're helping your investors make money and making yep. it beautifying the the space, right? And putting a name out there, a brand out there, and making this building like whatever name you want to name it, and make it really great, right? Make it stand out. That's kind of fun too, because now it's kind of like kind of like Monopoly in a sense that hey, I bought something, it was dilapidated, it wasn't poorly managed, and now you just beautified the whole thing, made it so much more enjoyable for everyone to live there, stay there, and then at the same time turn over units as you go to keep improving the whole building throughout and adding value quickly to you know scale, right? That Absolutely. becomes fun too, because like, hey, I made this. Look at the before and look at the after. So mm -hmm. you can transform something so quickly. That's that's the fun part of it too. Oh yeah. So like in the data driven data driven part too, are you guys implementing like rubs and like, you know utility structures in there to uh, help you guys reduce your expenses? Yeah, one of our properties, we uh, about a year ago probably we started we started doing like water bill back and um, different stuff like that. We own. I think, and I think now our, our greater part of our portfolio is triple net leases. Um, so we're doing quite a bit in, in the industrial space now, um, which is, which, which is real fun to work in. Um, but yeah, no, any ways that you can find value, you know, that, that's a huge one. If you can start billing back, if you have the, you know, if there's the opportunity to bill back certain expenses, stuff like that, I mean, um, it is huge. Nice. And what do you think about like multi-units versus triple net leases? There's a lot of there's differences for sure. There there's you know the positive and negatives to each one. Um, I do like you know multifamily is 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 still like our main thing, and it's you know it's it's great. It's easy to lease units. Um, industrial is tougher to lease units. You get triple net leases though with long term tenants, and it's a little bit more stable. Um, you know a lot of times less BS overall, but. So, I mean, there's definitely, you know, several positive and negatives to each one. For us right now, it's just, 
and this is nationwide thing. I mean, multifamily deals are out there. We're still trying our best to find that next hundred year to B class value at apartment building, but so is the rest of the world. It's, you know, it's the deal everyone's after right now. And it's just so competitive and you're seeing cap rates at such low rates. It's hard to justify, you know, some of these returns to investors that we have to hit. So we've been looking quite a bit and doing deals in industrial um, where, you know, still quality assets that provide great returns just at a little bit higher of a cap rate where we can make sense to, for these returns. Nice. How's the vacancy factor for a industrial versus a multi-unit? That's, that's the thing for sure. I mean, is it, it's, if you, if a vac, if a unit goes vacant, mm-hmm. it's, is there's more that goes into leasing it, you know, it could sit and that's, that's, I mean, right now, I mean, in the markets, we're looking at industrial vacancies at about, I think it was 4.1%. I just looked at Q2 numbers overall in these markets. So, I mean, it's uh, it's right, it's right there with multifamily. It's it's about the same. Um, so I mean, spaces are leasing. It's just a matter of finding the right tenant. It's not as easy as you know, an apartment's easy to lease. I mean, you can throw it up on, on Facebook Marketplace and rent it in a few days in, in most locations. Um, but so that's one of the tough parts for sure is finding good tenants. That's why most most of the time, you know, we're not buying vacant industrial buildings and and you know, betting we can lease them up in a year. We're usually buying buildings that have longer term leases. And a lot of times these leases, although, you know, guaranteed's a, 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 you know, a hard, hard word to use, but most of the time these leases are, are backed by strong tenants that are essentially guaranteed. And if you're looking at, we're looking at, you know, our performa and our equity is recaptured, but within three or four years of this lease term, it's kind of like, okay, I mean, we're recapturing equity is almost, is almost guaranteed and everything there is upside. So if they were to move out, we'd kind of protect our downside of building up reserves. So I mean, there's, that's the tough part I found with industrial is on the underwriting side. I mean, you know, multifamily is somewhat straightforward when it comes to, you know, forecasting vacancy. You can usually, unless it's a big, you know, turnaround, you can usually use a blanket, you know, seven, eight percent vacancy or whatever you want to use throughout the whole period if it's stabilized. With industrial, it's tough. I mean, say, you know, say you're buying, you know, there's only three or four tenants in this industrial complex and you know, leases up in five years. It's just kind of, you can try to do a little bit of research, but it's almost a crapshoot figuring out is this tenant going to release or not? If they do vacate, how quickly am I going to be able to release this thing up? What vacancy rate should I use for year five? You know, stuff like that where we can get a little bit more, um, a little bit more educated guesses there, I'd say. But that's why I always just lean towards the route of being very conservative. And if it, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to forecast it's going to sit vacant for a year, maybe fill it up in two weeks and, you know, then, then everything else is just upside from there. Nice. Yeah. That's the scary part for me. Like I like triple nets, but at the same time, I don't like the vacancy factor because if it's yeah. up you know, within three or five years, you're at risk unless you have a really good network of, you know, uh, commercial play, um, businesses that want to lease in your area and you built the whole database and you know, they want it upfront yeah. and it, it gets easier. Some guys have that. Some guys have a huge database. Go, Don't worry. I'll call anyone I need. I'll find the right person that fits this building. Right. And that's strong for them because they they know their um network but if you don't have yeah. the network then get scared because who's going to really want to lease and you know do they know you what's, what's all the setups and does it make sense for their business you know might not know their on um, their structure of leasing right so it gets yep. tough that way you need to learn both sides now you need to learn the leasing side how to work with different corporations and you got to still maintain the building and do it and the other part about it is like how do you add value at multi-unit you can, you can create added value in a triple net how do you add the value you're just you're stabilized yeah, it's a little bit. That's the other thing. Is one of the you know, it's a little bit less opportunity. There is value at opportunities, but it's not as you know easy easy to let's say explain or execute. It's more so a lot, a lot of time the value added is going to be more straightforward. Where it's you know um, maybe we're just increasing rental rates. Maybe they're you know price per square foot's lower than what it could be. Or sometimes there's deals that these tenants aren't on actually aren't on triple net leases. Although the market demands for that type of deal to have triple net lease, so you convert them from that to triple net, which can be you know, could scare them away, stuff like that. Um, is there, there's not as many, you know, in, in multifamily, there's probably a hundred different ways you can add value, you know, through all, all these different things with, in, in the industrial space and, and stuff like that. I mean, there, there, there's ways to do it, but it's a little bit less, you know, opportunities of, of ways to target value add deals. And going back to the multi-unit space, are you guys using your data and tracking like local, uh, like for example, like the economy, the jobs, the corporations that are moving in and out, the net migration um, incomes over the year over year, pre-COVID, post-COVID, are you guys looking at that as well? Yeah, we we, we, we track kind of different markets we're in. Um, I just, I, I, I don't get, I don't use like, I don't have any like crazy tools I use. I mean, I use like city data 
use that quite a bit to tra kind of track population trends and income growth and all that. Um, for the most part, we're within the same, you know, five or six, six, you know, tertiary markets are kind of where we operate in. So we have a good idea, you know, we're, we're in these markets, you know, on, on the ground. Uh, we've yet to kind of branch out into any other states and stuff like that where, you know, then it becomes double, you know, essential to really understand what's going on. You're not physically there um, to see what's going on. But yes, we do kind of look at these different data points. Nice. Yeah. Cause also too, like when you're going to different markets, you have to build new teams in every single market too. So it gets challenging too, because you might like a property, but you don't know the exact truth, the data behind it and the team behind it and how they're going to perform for that property. And when you're um, if you're assessing properties across the country, it gets even harder too, because now you're looking at multiple properties, but at the same time, you need to figure out multiple teams to com really compare, right? That Absolutely. Gets, that gets a little tricky too. And then which one's better? You don't know for sure, but you, you have an educated guess, and then you really try to make sure, and it comes back down to the team that's going to perform with you. And uh, also, if you have any you know knowledge about, okay, hey, you know, big companies, Amazon, Salesforce, Tesla, whoever is moving over there soon, or they already bought a location, we think the area will go up because they're going to bring this many jobs to that area, then mm -hmm. great. You hit next door to it, even better, right? Oh, yeah. That's that that's fun. that's the home run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun because yeah, you get great locations. You're like, wow, this is gonna stabilize. I'll be fine. We have Tesla next door. We have Amazon next door. You know, they're gonna bring some you know good jobs over there. So then yep. your rent should theoretically go up. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice. And then how about you guys look for any like um natural disaster planning? Look certain locations you don't want to buy. You know, fl flooding, tornadoes, thunder, whatever. You guys look at that. For our market here, it's not really a. Uh... Not really a worry. It's funny. I was just having that conversation with someone though, because we're talking about maybe trying to, you know, expand like Florida at some point. And that those are all factors where you have to definitely understand. But for us up here, it's kind of, <laughs> you know, up in Wisconsin, we don't really get too many. You know, knock on wood, we do get yeah. tornadoes every once in a while, but it's uh, fairly something you don't really have to worry about. I mean, floods, floodplains, and all that stuff you do, but yet to really run into anything um, like that. Yeah, it's nice to have a stable area where you don't have to worry so much about all these natural disasters. You know, like California, you have fires, you have earthquakes. Other places, you have tornadoes, thunderstorms, flooding. So then, you know, I think flooding is one of the, one of the different kinds of worse because if you flood your whole property, that's a lot of work to clean up, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. I don't even know how people deal with that once once that happens. That's, you know, really hard to see. Expensive. <laughs> Expensive and hard to see. And, like, you know, yeah. that's it's crazy. So, yeah, those are the kind of things that I like to look at, too. And, like, just think about, okay, where area are you investing in? Why that area? What's going on in that industry, that location? And how is it going to grow? Is the migration growing? Is, you know, people moving there from, you know, relocating from California or other places? And what's been happening in the last five years, right? And then you start looking at the rent changes and seeing that grow. But when you start seeing those little indicators, you can make some smart bets on it and start increasing value and saying, hey, this is a great place to go in. I think next five years, here's what's going to happen. It goes up, right? And even for me, like in real estate sales and investing in the Bay Area, I see that. And even back in 2008 to now, I'm like, here's all these things that's going to happen, but no one knows for certain, but it did happen. And great. Investors made a lot of money. Now, hey, can, will, will, will you do that again? And will you do that again with us out of area? You know, and yep. we'll, we'll see. But those are kind of fun things to analyze and predict. And that's why one of the reasons I also like data a lot is because it really tells you a lot. Historic data, even, you know, forecasting is not perfect, but you can really get a good census and hopefully use your best judgment indications to figure out with your team how to invest in different markets, right? Totally agree. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, about to wrap up, but tell me a little bit more about Smart Asset Capital. Like, what's your main job at Smart Asset Capital for you? For you? What do you do at there? I'd say uh, at this point, we're all kind of, our roles are all intermingled and I'm, I'm kind of involved in every aspect of it. But the majority of my time goes into finding and analyzing deals um, as well as asset management. So th those three things, I do raise capital as well. Um, but I'd say those are kind of where I spend most of my time is, you know, finding deals, analyzing them, and then being involved with the asset management. Um, at, at this point, I, like I said, I, mean, I, I kind of, I'm pretty much involved with all aspects of it now and we kind of all just kind of work together on everything, but nice. it's uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been awesome. We've been able to grow around this, around this area and build a network um, throughout, you know, the greater Milwaukee area. Um, and I think there's huge benefit and kind of, it is nice to be in multiple markets, but I also think there's a big benefit into having a strong presence in one market and really knowing all the brokers and knowing all the, who all the players are in your area. 
that it, that make, totally makes sense. You can see each building performing, so you know when one building is performing really well, you can start increasing the other ones. If they're all failing, you can kind of sense why the market's going down. You can kind of adjust for it quick, quicker because you see it from multiple buildings. Okay, and then um, for example, why Milwaukee? Like, even though you're there, but why Milwaukee? Yeah, it was more so kind of grew up in the area, and that's where that's where. Uh, kind of started um, and just built the relationships here. And then the, my partner already had probably a management company and a huge network around here. And it was just in our backyard type of thing, which I think if you can get away with starting in, in your backyard, I know, I know there's some markets, people, you know, if you're in that are really hard to, you know, it could be really expensive or just numbers don't work in a lot of these markets. If you're in a market that that's doable and it works, starting your backyard is definitely the easiest way to go. I mean, cause you can literally go out and meet people, you know, grab, there's something to said about going in person meeting someone um, instead of trying to just set up calls and everything from long distance can, you know, relationships kind of get lost in, in, in my opinion, doing it that way. So I, I think, you know, if you, if you have to invest out of state, I mean, it's hundred percent doable. You can build relationships, you know, a million different ways nowadays, but being starting in your own backyard, I think is for me, was the easiest way to get started. Yeah, totally makes sense. And even in California, there's other areas. You can always drive an hour or two hours away. There's a lot of areas, right? You just yep. got to really focus on which ones you want, what makes sense, and what, what do you see over there. And I see that too. Some people do that out of area like a couple hours away until they, it works, and you get, the, you get the comfortability. So that totally makes sense. And then you guys have been focusing primarily on multifamily, or are you guys jumping into more office, retail, industrial, self-storage, retirement homes? What do you see the trend going on right now? Yeah, multifamily is still our main thing. Just um, not not seeing as much deals that make sense nowadays. But um, for me, uh, industrial, self storage, and strip malls are kind of where where we're we're kind of straight away from office right now. Um, really, industrial is probably the, the S class I'm most bullish on right now. As well, we just bought a self storage facility, I and mean, that's that's been going wonderful. Um, nice. And you know, the right strip malls, I personally think, I know a lot of people probably disagree with this, but you know, a strip mall with strong service-based tenants in a suburban location to me is a good buy right now. Um, I, I think service-based tenants are here to stay. I mean, someone that cuts hair or, you know, these different, different, you know, laundromats, stuff like that, where there's, uh, you know, they're here to stay and they can't really be replaced by a business that can't be replaced by e-commerce. I'm not going to invest in a tenant that, you know, sells clothes right now because you know that that's stuff like that shifting online so if i find a strip mall that has strong tenants that are service-based um that's I, I i like that play right now too the yeah that makes sense i like that too because yeah if everything can be easily done on online chances are you'll be going out of, hopefully not but chances are it'd be easier to take those people's presence and you know amazon everyone will take over online and it's hard to compete because they have a great online presence. Yeah, I think service-based um, strip malls make sense. And yeah, everyone needs food, right? Hopefully they want to eat food. They want to go out and support local people and eat food. Great. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense than buying clothes. Nowadays, you can buy clothes. Maybe one day they measure you all online anyways and just send you the clothes. You try it on and return it. It's much yep. easier. So then it gets harder for the local people to just say, hey, I want to go in and try your clothes on and walk around and go browse through hundreds of clothes I don't even want just to find the one I want. Yep. Yeah. So it makes totally. sense. Okay, cool. Uh, so now we're... Um, I want to ask one last question too. What do you think, how do we help investors, people who want to become syndicators really get in the market right now? Like what should they be doing today to jump in, in either investing or in building their own syndication? Say two things, education and networking. Okay. The first, the first step is definitely the education piece. I mean, you start today by, I mean, you started right now listening to this podcast. I mean, stuff like that, where it's, you know, listening, listening to podcasts, that was huge for me, books, you know, may, maybe invest a little money in an online course, stuff like that. I mean, just really learning it and spending time and not getting too, too far ahead of yourself first. I mean, you have to see how to spend the time to learn it and then build, build, build relationships. I mean, you can do both those simultaneously. It's really just that that's really the first step you have to do before you start calling brokers and you start trying to raise money. I mean, you have to develop that, that base knowledge. So when a broker or investor asks you what cap rate is it, or, you know, what's the cash on cash return, you know, you don't sound dumb not being able to answer the question. So you have to first develop that base knowledge and then just take the steps to, to get up there. I agree. I think, yeah, the hardest part is taking the first step and it's really, you know, being out there. If you're an introvert, whatever you are, you really need to go networking, whether it's online Zooms, if you feel comfortable that way, or you want to go in person, going to meetups, especially yep. looking at bigger pockets, looking at 
podcast, listening to podcasts, reading books, watching YouTube videos, uh, you know, rich dad, poor dad, whatever it may be, you got to do it. Right. And that's the only way to really execute. And once you, you'll, you'll be ready when you're ready, you'll know it because you started taking the education and value and you, you can sense yourself like, okay, I'm ready to connect and meet people, talk and learn more and actually start doing in the, like the role. Yeah. The first one's always the hardest one, but once you get going, it becomes so much easier after that. Right. You get comfortable because now you did it once. All you need is one time to do it. And then from there, and whether you partner, uh, get mentors, coaches, it works, right? 100%. Okay, cool. So how do people reach out to you? I can be reached. um, My email is Brock, B-R-O-C-K, at smartassetcapital.com. There we go. And then also I have, so I have quite a few educational resources on my website, um, a whole bunch of different things, the asset management stuff I was talking about. I have a ebook on finding and analyzing deals. So the website, if you just type in www.smartassetcapital.com, click the education tab there and I have a whole bunch of different ebooks and, and uh, tools there to download. Feel free. You can shoot me, you know, on, on Instagram as well. I'm trying to do more there. Um, Instagram is just at Brock Mogensen. Uh, feel free to shoot me a DM there too. I'd love to get in touch. Cool. Thank you so much, Brock, um, for being on our show today. And, you know, thank you for providing that value to everyone. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Hopefully you guys take action. It's already what? It's already June 17th. When are you taking action if you haven't already done so? And if you've already done so, great. Keep doing it. Keep pushing through it because it's always that plateau, the failure, the fear. Just get over it and just start asking questions. Start working with the right people, connecting with everyone you can, asking us as well, and hopefully listening to more podcasts and, you know, learning more. But, Thanks so much for being on our show, Brock. Um, Everyone, check us out on the Truth About Real Estate podcast on Apple and everywhere else, and we'll see you in the next one. Have a great day.